Wow. I am, uh, I'm a little bit taken aback by uh, just the honor and the privilege it is to be able to lead in God's church. You can put your phone on Do Not Disturb if you haven't already. We didn't cover that before the 8.30 last week, and uh, we didn't cover asthma attacks. Like, we didn't cover a lot of things last week, but we need to cover that ahead of time. Make sure you're hydrated and you're ready to go. You guys know some of those efforts to distract from moments like these are initiated by powers that would love for you to miss out on what the Word of God is revealing right now. So I know our building is like cannot fit another human being in it right now. And I know a lot's going on, but would love it if we could all just focus in and ask God to move. It is an honor and a privilege to get to stand where I stand right now. And hearing Andy's words talking about the church as Christ's bride, and it is uh, not lost on me that I do not deserve to stand where I stand today and deliver the word that I'm delivering today, but it is also um, a position of authority that I take by faith. And I have never, in the nine years that we've had together as a church, had a word that God has given me confirmed with more supernatural, out-of-nowhere confirmations than the word I'm about to preach to you today. So if it's horrible, it's his fault. And, I, and if it moves in your life, it is not man. It is the Holy Spirit of God. We've been in this series in the book of Acts, and it's been amazing to read the story of the early church. Last week, we talked about the fear of God combining with the comfort of the Holy Spirit, this courage that comes over you when you're filled with the Spirit of God, and how these two competing realities, like awareness of God's holiness, like, whoa, God is way bigger than I thought, and way more pure than I thought, and I'm way more sinful than I thought, but at the same time, the closeness of the presence of God, of he's my dad, and he's bought me with the blood of Jesus. I'm brought near. I'm not shunned away. Those two realities coexisting are what creates peace in your life and in the local church. We've got to hold both of those things hand in hand in unison and walk in reverence for God and also relational friendship with God. Now, that environment that came over the early church is what caused the miracles that we're going to read about today. So where you have the fear of God and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit coming together simultaneously, it creates an environment where the Holy Spirit can do the miraculous and it be recognized for what it is, an opportunity to give glory and majesty to the God who is worthy. Before we read this passage, I want to give you the title. The title for the sermon today is called Faith for More, Focus on People. Faith for More, Focus on People. Somebody say faith. Say it out loud. Faith. Look at somebody next to you, say focus, focus. Just remind them, focus. I'm gonna talk about how these two neglected things in most of our lives are the key to experiencing more of God. A theme in the book of Acts that we've been talking about from the very beginning is we do not want to study the story of the early church as if it is some one-time thing where God did this mysterious, miraculous thing that he'll never do again and he'll never invite us into again. And we're just 2,000 years later reading about it and singing our songs and preaching our sermons and hoping that God might do something in our midst. No, the book of Acts was the unlocking of a new era in redemptive history. The spirit-filled church is now on the move. You live in the era of this book. And so, so many times I'm here hearing stories from the book of Acts and I'm going, yeah, that's like never going to happen in our day. And God would never move like that powerfully in our day. But that very lack of faith is a result of my own heart's lack of repentance. 
And what you'll notice as you get frustrated with God not moving or bringing breakthrough in your life is most of the time when there's a lack of God's power on your life, it's not God who's the problem. It's you and it's me. And so as we've invited everyone into more, I'm just trying to remind us every week, hey, where you see a disconnect between the God of these stories and the God of your life, it's not his lack of power that's the issue. It's your lack of faith and your lack of focus. Today, if it's anything, it's a day of repentance for me and for us as a church to turn from where we are right now and recognize like God is a God of turnarounds and he's about to do two that are absolutely amazing in the scriptures that we're gonna read today. He'll turn any situation around by getting involved in a split second. He can turn your life, your family and your entire story around sometimes without you even seeing it coming. But even though God is the God of turnaround, I don't think what you need to do today is continue to sit back waiting for him to turn things around. I think you need to actively, by faith, turn around and turn toward him and walk in daily faithfulness to him. Because here's the thing, the the miraculous and the mysterious hand of God moving and showing you more of who he is goes hand in hand with the boring, somewhat mundane, daily decision to take up your cross and follow Jesus. So I do not, I'm going to preach an availability of the power of God that is going to make it sound like, man, today, as you get alone with God, God might just talk to you or do something crazy that you don't see coming. I don't want talk of the miraculous or talk of like, there could be so much more that I'm not tasting and I'm not seeing. I don't ever want that to distract you from daily faithfulness of just going, hey, no matter what it looks like today, what does it look like for me to be formed into the image of Christ, take up my cross and follow Jesus? Daily faithfulness though, on that road of following Jesus could deliver more than you are giving God credit for if you create more space in and through your life. Are y'all ready to hear from the word of God? Did you bring your Bible across all of our locations? If you have your Bible, you know what to do. Hold it up in the air, hold it up in the air. Man, this is, uh, this is more than I've seen. And some of y'all without Bibles look mad at me. That's why I do it. Good, I like the guy, he's got his phone out and his Bible app out, but he's not holding it up like he's about to pretend, that counts. Turn with me to Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week in verse 32. One of the 15 things God did this week to just confirm and show me, whoa, this is exactly what we're supposed to be talking about, was he showed me something about the timing of this passage. We are going to finish Acts nine today, and we've been in Acts nine for weeks because Luke's chapters are really long. He's super detailed. He was a physician. But we're finishing Acts 9 now, and we're going to start Acts 10 next Sunday. The reason why that's significant is because this Thursday, August 17th, marks our nine-year anniversary together as a church, which means, quite literally, as we turn the page on Acts 9 and begin Acts 10, we are finishing year 9 and launching into year 10. I think it's cool. You might be here and be like, well, that's just the timing of where you had it. You planned this months ago. If you've been following Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit for any amount of time, you know there are no coincidences. God moves in crazy ways. And I'm like, it's not an accident that nine, done, and now we're headed into 10. And it's literally true on the page. I don't know how y'all are responding to the story I just told, but they look like it's not that impressive. I hope y'all think it's impressive through a screen in Rosewood Hall right now. And y'all are cheering and going crazy because God's that good, but we'll keep these, uh, th- these people who need to be brought up in, okay, y- y- y'all are good, y'all are good, okay. Acts chapter nine, verse 32, if you're there, say I'm there. 
It starts with, as Peter traveled about the country. So the narrative is shifting back to Peter. We haven't heard from him in a little while, and we're about to spend a little bit of time with him over the course of the next few chapters. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Amazing. Peter's traveling around. He's going to this coastal area where there's this city called Lydda, and there's believers there. But what's unique about this miracle is that there's not a guy who hasn't walked for eight years who's hoping and praying that Peter will show up with a miracle. Peter shows up, and the passage says he was looking for this guy. This is not just a spiritual gift of healing, but a gift of revelation where you see in Jesus's life, sometimes someone like grabs Jesus or gets his attention. It's like, please heal me. But sometimes Jesus knows exactly where he's going and who he's going to because it's been revealed by the spirit. He's like, you, you're getting healed today. Don't know if you asked for it. Don't know if you wanted it, but it's here. That's what we have happening to this guy named Aeneas. And he's actually named after one of the heroes in the Iliad. If you've ever read about the Trojan War, Aeneas is a name that, that comes from there. So he's got this hero-like name with this lame condition that keeps him unable to walk for eight years. He doesn't even say a word. Peter walks in, Aeneas, yep, I knew I I was gonna find you. Jesus Christ heals you. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to ask him if he's gonna send me the power to heal you. I'm just telling you the reality. It's on, stand up, roll up your mat and walk. And he does. And then notice at the end of this short little narrative, it says lots of people turn to the Lord. You wanna mark that for later, but we're gonna keep the story going in verse 36. It says in Joppa, so we're moving on. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Somebody say Dorcas. It's a fun name to say. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. A lot we need to cover about this. So Peter's in Lydda. He gets a word from God. You're going to go heal this guy. Eight years, he's been bedridden. He gets, stands up, takes up his map. But then he gets word from 10 miles away, this city called Joppa, that this believer, this woman named Tabitha in Aramaic, but Dorcas in Greek has died and the people are freaking out. Now, I need to admit from this moment in the sermon on that this is a very personal sermon for me because my mom's name is Dorcas. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only human being in the history of the world who's ever said that, but that's me. Like, I've never met another woman named Dorcas in my life other than my mother. And you can imagine what that was like for her growing up and the names that were called. And I always like to envision, so my dad grew up Roman Catholic in the Philadelphia area, full-blooded Italian family, just blue collar, like as, as normal Italian immigrant as you can be. And my dad meets this girl from the South And I I just envisioned this scene in my mind. My grandparents have passed away, but I just want to ask them, like, what was it like the moment they asked them, well, what's her name, son? Her name's Dorcas. Like, can you imagine what that was like for my grandparents in that moment? I just feel, I have such a soft heart for my mom because she's so amazing, but don't name your child Dorcas. And um, love you, mom. And, and, And every time I read this story, I'm so struck by it because 
My mom actually has the same spiritual gift as Dorcas in the Bible. It's called the gift of mercy. It's when your heart breaks for the poor. Now, as Christians, all of us should care about poverty. All of us should care about feeding people who are hungry. All of us collectively should lean in our lives for the sake of the kingdom of God expanding through the meeting of physical needs. But the spiritual gift of mercy is to another level. It's like you can't sleep at night because you drove past that person and you know where they're sleeping and you got to do something about it. Like when my mom travels to other countries on mission trips, she doesn't come back and go back to her normal life. She like adopts the kids that she sees on mission trips, stays in touch with them through social media and makes sure that they get an education and that they have a future. And literally families without parents have parents through my parents and through their money and lives that they would not have. I have watched my mom give away more of my dad's money than, than I'm telling you. She is like, she cannot, she will drive by. Someone on the street and it's like, no, we're, we're turning back around. I got to say something. I got to make sure that somebody is trying to meet that need. If you have that in you, by the way, you might have the spiritual gift of mercy and God might be unlocking something in you that you're supposed to pay attention to. And I just say that to say, I see so many things as I read these names off of a page that I saw in my mother and I continue to see in her life. Well, this Tabitha in Aramaic, Dorcas in Greek has passed away. And the impact of her life is immediately felt by the circle around her, so much so that they don't fully accept her death. It says they washed her body, which is what you do before a burial, but they placed her in an upper room. You don't do that in Jewish culture. You, you get things rolling with the burial rites. What's up with the upper room? Well, there are two scenes in the Old Testament where someone was placed in an upper room who had died, but they were resuscitated. You have one in 1 Kings chapter 17 with the widow at Zarephath, and Elijah heals and raises this woman's son from the dead by praying over him because after he dies, he's put in an upstairs room. This miracle is mirrored in 2 Kings chapter 4 where Elijah's protege, Elisha, does a miracle for a, Shunanite's woman, a Shunanite woman's son who dies and then is resurrected from the dead. Now, I need to distinguish when we're talking about resurrection, the stories like Lazarus and these stories in First and Second Kings are not resurrection in the sense where Jesus is eternal resurrection, where he's in his physical body that will never decay and never die for all of eternity. These are more resuscitating them to the life they had previously. So even though they rise from the dead, their earthly life will still end and they in Christ will receive their physical body for all of eternity eventually. Those miracles have happened in the past. And these people in Joppa are hearing, Peter's only 10 miles away. Hold on. Might we see a story like what we saw back there if we just have the faith to put her in the upper room and get him here and let's see what happens. So let's read what happens next in verse 39. It says, Peter went with them and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Amazing. Amazing. You have back-to-back -back miracles 
that very closely mirror each other, but also should intentionally be contrasted. What do you have? You have Peter showing up, speaking someone's name, and telling them to get up. But the difference you need to notice about the story of Aeneas and the story of Dorcas is in Peter's response to the condition of each of them. You have Aeneas, who Peter finds and says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. It's time. We don't need to talk about it. It's yours. But then in this one, they bring Peter in. He puts everyone out of the room and does what? Praise. It says he got down on his knees and prayed. Why is he praying? Because Peter got a spiritual revelation from God to go and heal Aeneas. But in this situation, this is real-time response to a real miracle. And Peter doesn't presume for himself that God, even though he can, will always heal in the immediate moment. Peter is asking God for release to do this miracle. God, are you pouring out the power to raise this woman from the dead? That's very important for everybody who reads stories like this in the book of Acts and wonders why they didn't get the miracle they were praying for. And you wonder if it looks so easy on the pages of scripture, why didn't that happen for my child? Why didn't that happen for my parent? Why didn't that happen in my story? In the amazing narrative of God's sovereignty, sometimes God chooses to heal immediately and every time where Jesus is involved, God does choose to heal and resurrect eternally. This is an eternal story about the glory of God, and I will not presume to stand in front of you and know in every instance why that person got healed and that person didn't. All I can tell you is through the faithful trust in God in the middle of not understanding and the celebration of the miracle, the same thing is the culmination, the glory of God. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that there's a weight of glory that will be revealed on the other side of suffering that will far surpass all of the trouble that we have in this life. So if you're here and you struggle with passages like this, I'm with you. But notice Peter going, God, I am not presuming that you're going to do this miracle. Do you want this woman to rise? So it begs the question, what was it when he was down there praying that gave him the confidence to stand up and go, Tabitha, get up? What was it? And you could go, well, maybe God whispered, yes, do it. Maybe I, 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 I'm not trying to presume too far into believing I know that I know what happened in that moment, but I believe the Holy Spirit revealed to me through the study of scriptures what it was that released Peter to do this miracle. This is one of the coolest things that I've ever seen in scripture on my own time. Because in my head, as I read about Peter putting them out of the room, I was like, man, that sounds super familiar. Didn't Jesus do a miracle where he put everyone out of the room and then raised a little girl? And so I'm going back there in my head and I'm going, oh yeah, it, that was a story that was a double miracle. There was one miracle on the way to do the other one. And the first miracle was a physical healing and the second miracle was a resurrection. And I start going there in my head and I'm like, oh man, he's lived this scene before. You remember the scene where Jairus, the synagogue leader, his daughter dies? It's in three different gospel accounts. And he comes to Jesus, he's like, my daughter is sick, not dead. My daughter is sick, come with me. Jesus is like, I'm coming, I'm coming to do it. Let's go, let's go to your house. On the way to the house, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years who touches the edge of Jesus's garment. So Jesus has to stop and have this conversation with this woman who's instantly healed, but she's not healed of her emotional baggage of being 
so torn away from her community for so long and in so much bondage relationally that Jesus goes, you don't just need to be healed physically. You need to say out loud what condition you were in so that you can be healed socially as well. And this woman, I did a whole sermon about this, by the way. It was called Pursuing Jesus in our Luke series last fall. It was powerful. And uh, it was powerful because the Holy Spirit was on, not because I delivered it well. Just want to add that in. But, but I talked about, man, this is so cool. This is a double miracle. And then someone comes up to Jesus while he's healing the woman and talking to her and says, don't worry about, don't bother the teacher. Your daughter is not just sick. She died. And Jesus turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. I'm not just a healer of physical sickness. I am the resurrection, Anastasis. I am the life. I can do this if you'll just believe. And so Peter, in his mind, praying, knows that there's a moment where there was a miracle after a miracle. The first miracle was physical healing, and then the second miracle was a resurrection miracle where Jesus put everyone out of the room. But notice this. He didn't put everyone out of the room. He let three of his disciples stay. Guess who one of the three was? Peter. Peter, James, and John, and the girl's parents. And I want to read to you. It gets crazier, y'all. I want to read to you how Jesus raised this girl from the dead. You don't have to turn there. Mark chapter 5, beginning at the back half of verse 40. Let's read this. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. Who's that? Peter, James, and John. And went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. This is the other double miracle story that mirrors Peter's experience. And as he's praying, he remembers being in the room where Jesus did the miracle. And when Jesus told the girl to get up, Mark tells us he said it in Aramaic. And the phrase goes like this, Talitha kum. I know you don't know a lot about Aramaic, neither do I, but trust my study of this. If you're thinking, hold on, that looks a lot like the word Tabitha. It's because it is the same word. And Peter is going, God, are you doing this? And he's, wait, I was there when you were, did this miracle on the way to do this one. Puts everyone out of the room. I feel like in that moment, the Holy Spirit, in the most incredible, tear-filled, but also laughter-filled, joy-filled way, was like, hey, Peter, what's the girl's name? Dorcas. No, not in Greek. In Aramaic. What are they all calling her? Tabitha. Oh. Tabitha, get up. He has a moment with Jesus that fills him with faith to usher in the kingdom of God through a miracle. And to everybody else, it just looks like this. This girl who is dead is now up and walking. He presents her. They're all celebrating. People are turning to the Lord right and left. But for Peter, he's the one who knows God to such an intimate level that he's going... Man, that was so dang cool. 
That was so cool how God connected a moment that I was in there and then I'm in there and whoa, like, can you imagine the stories that were overflowing from that? And I realized even as I'm preaching it right now, y'all might be like, Miles, that's a really cool connection you made there. But what in the world does that have to do with my life? What in the world does that have to do with my day? What in the world does that have to do with my week? I want to say to you, no, you're not Peter and no, you're not in the book of Acts, but you do live in the times of refreshing that come from the Lord on the back half of repentance and your life could be this exhilarating. Your stories could be this powerful. The Holy Spirit wants to wake you up to more of God. Your life can't compete with sin because your life is so boring. And if you will allow the Holy Spirit to fill you with a revelation of God that could obliterate all your expectations or preconceived notions because you grew up traditional or assumptions about abuse because people took it too far when you were a kid and go, God, if you're moving in my day the way you are moving in this day. If there's more of you I can experience, if there's more of you I can taste, I want it all and I want it in my life. It's yours. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is available to you. This is so available and I, and I gotta be careful because I'm experiencing this right now. My wife is experiencing this right now. Some people on our staff are experiencing this right now. Simultaneously over this year, we've experienced more resistance and pushback from the darkness and the enemy than we ever have before. So I gotta tell you, there is a price to knowing God on this level of intimacy. By the way, I'm not claiming to know God on the level of intimacy that Peter did. This is, this is special. But I'm starting to taste more of God for myself and I'm going, oh man, this is intoxicating to live like this. Like he's speaking and moving through real conversations and real moments with him individually. He's, he's everywhere. There's more of God. There's, there is so much more. But what are you missing? What am I missing? Well. Our assumption is that we're missing power, but that is an incorrect assumption. The challenge for God is never to conjure up the power. I hope you know when you read these miracles that God's not in heaven going, okay, we got Aeneas because that's just like an eight-year issue. But raising someone from the dead, I'm gonna need all the angels to get in here and we gotta like come together and give some Jedi force to Peter because this is like, this is another level of miraculous power. I do wanna say, and I say this humbly, these moments are not hard for God. He doesn't have to like work himself up to go, man, they need a special level of power. The power for God is the easy part because who he is. The challenge for God is not, do I have enough power to do this? The challenge is, can God find people who have faith for more and focus on others? Are there people out there who actually believe that he's pouring out his spirit like this and believe it enough to pay attention to the reason for their lives and manifest itself through watching the needs of the people around them well? That's what's missing. That's what it takes to step into more of God. That's what I want to argue today. It's Faith for more and focus on people that if we will turn from living our self-centered and self-consumed, self-absorbed lives to go, God, if you're pouring out your spirit like this, let's like lean in and believe you for more. That's why we're doing seven nights of prayer this month. Those seven nights, I just unbutton the bottom of my shirt. Those, those seven nights are intended to be like jars of oil, like the widow in the story I talked about earlier. Going, God, if you're pouring it out, we want to create some space. All those seven nights are jars. Go, God, we, we created the space. Do you want to fill it? Do you want to do something new? But it starts with faith for more and focus on people. Two problems we've got to tackle today, and I'll have two points that coexist with both of these. Number one, first problem, we lack the faith for more. We lack the faith for more. 
We have so few stories like this in our lives personally because our commitment to God is not a commitment to believe him for more. It's a commitment to get him to sign off on our own control. So if your commitment is to control the details of your life and organize it such that you maximize your own comfort and the picture that everybody else sees about your life, don't be surprised if the stories that manifest themselves through your life don't look anything like the stories of scripture. If your main ambition in your spirituality is the management of comfort and narratives, you have significantly limited even the space that if God's in heaven leaned over ready to pour out his spirit on you, where does he even have space to do that? Where are you risking anything in your finances, anything in your conversations, anything with your kids, anything with your career, anything with your future? Because faith has a risk attached to it. So faith for more is not, okay, I'm willing to believe on paper that God could know. Faith for more is an expressed, clear level of God. If there's more available in my life, I've got to create the space for you to do that through my life. James 4 says, we have not because we ask not. I'm talking about expressing your faith out loud to God, clearly. You know, God, if, if there's something in this situation, in this moment of my life, I want to say it out loud. What does James say next? He says, and then when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives so as to spend it on your own selfish desires. So the problem is not just that we don't have the faith to ask God for more of his presence, for more of his power. The problem is also that even if he did pour out more of his presence and his power, we wouldn't make it about people. We would make it about ourselves. That's problem number two. We, gotta f- we lack focus for people. This is the entire Acts series. Go back to Acts chapter one, the first Sunday we were in this building. I told y'all the function of the Holy Spirit is not a warm and fuzzy feeling or a mystical moment that you have with God or like, oh man, that felt nice. The function of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is for the purpose of witnessing. So the Holy Spirit is poured out, but there's gotta be a function to that power. If your life doesn't exist on mission for other people, guess what? No need for power, because it's all about you. But if the power has a function and the function looks like mission, I've gotta create the space. What did both miracles have as their resolution at the very end? I'll read it to you, verse 35. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord, Acts 9, 42. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. The purpose of both of these miracles is not just a few people going, whoa, that was crazy. The purpose is the gospel message confirmed through real manifestations of the kingdom of God. And people are going, hey, I thought this was a sham. I thought they were just overly emotional. I thought they were weird, but oh my goodness, that girl was dead and now she's alive. I knew that guy. I knew Aeneas. He was so annoying talking about if only I could walk, if only I could sound a little Wizard of Oz, but he's like, if if I could just get my miracle now, he's walking around, I can't deny that. I am ready to turn to the Lord. The function of the power of God is to fill those who are set on mission for the sake of other people. And so if the problem is that we lack faith for more and the other problem is that we lack focus on people, these are the two steps of repentance that we are going to take today as a church. A turning away from lack of faith and a turning away from making it about ourselves. Are y'all still with me? I got a couple of minutes left and I promise this is, I think this is going out in a powerful way. Jesus, keep moving. Number one, Here's the two solutions, and they're, they're made through repentance. Turn from theoretical faith to personal faith. Turn from theoretical faith to personal faith. What do I mean by theoretical faith? Theoretical faith is faith on paper. It's like, I believe God raises the dead, and you should. 
I believe that God has the power to heal. I believe that Jesus is moving in this way or this way or this way. They're all good things to believe in, but as long as they're disconnected from your experience, they have a limited amount of power. So don't get me wrong. Theoretical faith, and I believe these things about God, is great. It's just not all. When theoretical faith becomes personal, it's stuff that you knew about God on the page manifesting itself in your daily life. And you're going, like Peter, whoa, I knew that Jesus could do that, but I didn't know that like he could connect to me so personally and intimately and supernaturally work through me. Like, Think about that moment as he relives the double miracle that he experienced three years prior, and now he's in this moment. It could have been more years, by the way. Don't, don't quote me on that. But many years later, sitting there going, I cannot believe this. Did you know you could have stories like that if you would be willing? Here's the key. To bring God out of the safe place where he is on the page and bring him into your story personally. So what does it mean to have personal faith? It means to call God personally into whatever your most urgent needs and anxieties are right now and clearly express that faith and call him into it over the course of time. I'm not talking about name it, claim it, prosperity teaching. I'm talking about God. Here's the heaviest burden on me right now. Or here's the greatest dream I feel like you've birthed in me. Or here's something that happened years ago that I still haven't worked through. And calling clearly and specifically, God, I want you to move and intervene in this way and watching the story that he tells. Now he will not be like, some type of machine or robot who you can control and work exactly how you articulated it out loud, but he will move and tell a story and make it personal. It was uh, nine years ago, that summer before we started the church, our uh, team that was meeting out at Ace Hardware, we read the same book, which was called Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. Anybody read it? Anybody enjoy it? Awesome book on prayer. Um, and, and I took it literally because they have a story of starting a church in Washington, D.C. and walking circles around all these buildings that God eventually gave them for almost no money. I was like, well, if, if there's a magic formula and it's walking circles and praying, I'll try it. Like, whatever. I, I mean, it's a great book. And that's not what he's prescribing at all, by the way. When I got to Auburn, we we're like, okay, what do we not, what do we not have? Uh, building, money, people, momentum, vision, leadership. Uh, I mean, everything. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm reading about this. I'm, I feel like God, that building could be available, so we'll start praying circles around that building. And da, da, da. almost every building that I've prayed circles around, God has pretty swiftly and clearly communicated, no, move on, it's not that one, no. So I don't wanna tell this story like, all you gotta do is start walking some circles and God will get, no, no, no. But that fall, after walking some circles and getting some no's, I preached through Joshua in a series we did called Church Without Walls and we got to the wall of Jericho. And I was like, hey, what is, the, what is the dream and vision of this church? It's for Jesus to be more famous than what Auburn's famous for, which was football. This was the year after the magical, miraculous season. And I was like, the dream for this church is just to make Jesus more famous than what Auburn is the most known for. So what if we met every morning and walked a prayer circle around Jordan-Hare Stadium? That's the largest gathering place that our city has where not just people from this community or college students, but like everybody connected to this area comes together in the fall for that. And let's just ask God for a seat of authority in this community to be able to make Jesus famous. So for six days, about 20, maybe 40 of us prayed a circle around Jordan-Hare Stadium. Like just walked every morning, looked so weird to the students walking by. Who are those crazy people? And then on Sunday, we had nowhere to gather on Sunday mornings. We met on Sunday nights. So we did seven laps, just like they do in the book of Joshua. Some of us ran, myself, others of us walked. And it was like, we're going to do seven laps. Boom. Miles, what happened? 
on the one hand, nothing. Everything went on its normal, awkward, weird way our church was going on for the next couple of months. But on the other hand, everything. It is not embellishment or exaggerating to say God hasn't just given us a position of authority in this community. He's given us the position of authority, both on the campus and in the local community, spiritually. And you could look at that and go, how did God do that? Oh, you just, you just have to get a young Italian preacher who yells and, and a band that can play music that's relevant at the time and the right environment and the right ministry choices and hiring people. Let me tell you this. ACC is experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we're experiencing because we asked God for it. We prayed it specifically. God, we're here. We know that this is the space where this community comes together. We're asking God, in Jesus' name, would you do something new? In Jesus' name, would you show up? And I'm standing here nine years later on the back end of God moving through a group of people who were just bold enough and honestly dumb enough to ask. You don't have faith for more because you've never made your story personal. You don't have faith for more because you've never driven your your wayward child crazy with journals full of prayers. You gotta make this thing specific. You gotta call on God. And listen, in the process of doing that, God will redirect you. If you're over here going, oh God, you gave me that dream to be a doctor and I just, and you're like not gifted at school at all. I'm sorry, we don't want you to be one of our doctors. And he's like, it's not that, sweetheart. It's not that, man. Like, it's over here. He'll do that. When I'm walking around buildings that if I drove you past now, you'd probably go, you walked around that building and you wanted that and God was thinking about this? You'll notice in the process, yes, he has miraculous yeses and power to pour out, but he also has supernatural no's where on the back end, you will look back and go, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're in charge of my story and not me, but you'll never have stories like that and you'll never have power like that poured out if you don't take the time to make this more specific. I'm asking you in your story, in your relationships, in your life, there's no way I know how to read this for you personally. What does it look like for you to take your faith from being stories about the church and about the people of Israel to Heavenly Father, this power is in my life. And here's what I'm calling on you to do in my day. Take it from theory and make it practical and personal. Last thing I'll say about this one, it becomes personal when you express it. So it's not enough for this message to be resonating with you right now and you to be like, yeah, that was good. That'll change my life. Uh Uh-uh. Faith that goes underexpressed is a faith that lacks the power for God to get the glory. Because then when God does it, who's going to take the credit for it? I can't stand up here and go, look at this church that I built for nine years. I stand up here and go, no, this was something that we cried out to God for and just said, God, we look stupid walking in circles around this football stadium right now. But if you're still the God of these pages of scripture, would you pour your spirit out and do something new and maybe do something that we're not expecting? And he does it. So make it clear, make it specific, turn from theoretical faith to personal faith. That's what was happening for Peter and Aeneas and Dorcas. That's what can happen for you. Number two, and then I'm almost done. This one, this point is just as long. Number two, turn, turn from me-centered living to missional living. So remember our problems. We lack the faith for more. How do I get faith for more? Make it personal. We lack focus for people. How do I, how, what do I do with that? Turn from me-centered living to missional living. Are our lives really, ultimately, about others? And the truth is, you don't really know the answer to that until you're gone. Tabitha's life and impact is measured by the response of her circle when her life ends. 
You want to talk about an impact on people? How would you like to have people protest your funeral? Tabitha passed away. Oh, uh-uh. We're not about trying to do this without Tabitha. Get her on the, if Peter's coming and if he's got, uh, yeah, let's just take a shot on God. How much does she benefit these people? Peter shows up and they got their clothes and their stuff. They're like, if she wouldn't have made this for me, I wouldn't be warm at night. If, she, if, you, if y'all could, as best you could, try to stay in your seats as long as you can. It's very, very distracting to try to be in this moment with the Holy Spirit and have so many people getting up. As much as you can, stay right where you are. At that moment, at, at that moment you see her life was actually not lived for selfish ambition. It was lived for the purposes of other people and every tombstone has a dash that starts the year you were born and ends at a time that none of you know and honestly very few of us will see coming. We want that middle dash to say others, but it will not say that without an intentional choice to live your life for something greater. And I'm not talking about every once in a while being kind to the people around you. I'm talking about dying to the purpose of your life being about self to Jesus, whatever you have for me, if your will for my life is to live for the benefit of others, I'm in and I'm surrendered. And I saw this, I saw this in a funeral moment eight years ago. So eight years ago this month, uh, Courtney lost her dad to a four month long battle with throat cancer. He passed away on August 31st, 2015. And none of us saw it come in. It comes out of nowhere, and things were bleak from the very beginning. They didn't catch it until it was stage four, and then it, it was an amazing summer of miracles. He gave his life to the Lord. He got baptized. It was, it was powerful to see how God moved in and through his life. But the moment I remember the most had to do with his funeral, and, and not even necessarily his literal funeral, because when he passed away, we had a funeral in Metro Atlanta at my former church. But most of the people who attended that service knew me or knew Courtney or knew her siblings or or, or her family or was somehow connected to somebody other than Courtney's dad. A few people knew him well, but the people who knew him best were out in Texas because the last decade of his life, he served as an executive for Chewy's restaurants. Anybody ever been to Chewy's? Really good Tex-Mex. Unfortunately, we don't have one here. Y'all have one in Birmingham. And because of that, I'll just go to the summit and go there for lunch today and make the rest of us jealous. Or don't, because the summit is crazy. Um, so many people out there, all Birmingham people will get that. But, but he's an executive for Chewy's restaurants all, all over the state of Texas at the time. And we go out there and the CEO of Chewy's has a memorial planned for him at one of the restaurants. And we thought like maybe five, 10 employees will be there. This restaurant is packed out with people who knew Courtney's dad. His name was Philip. So when Mark Lamb preached a sermon on Philip on July 2nd about dealing with grief, I'm sitting there beside Courtney, just squeezing her hand, trying to hold it all together. And they're just telling stories. His life mattered. It had an impact on me. I wouldn't have a career. I wouldn't have a marriage. I wouldn't have a life if this guy hadn't walked in the room, stuff that none of us were aware was even happening. And because they wanted his life to have meaning and impact, they didn't really know what to do, but they had a generous spirit come over them and they were like, okay, can we we give money to something he cared about? Like, is there some kind of philanthropic effort or nonprofit? Like, who who can we give money to? What can we do? And somebody said to the CEO, well, his his son-in-law just started a church. I think it's in Auburn. And at the time, 
we started to grow a little bit. We had a couple hundred people and we're going, okay, what, what are we gonna do ultimately for our building? He's like, got it, that's it. Did you know the first 20, 30, $40,000 given to the construction of this building was given by Chewy's executives who have never actually been to Auburn or this church for that matter. And we started the Philip Lazenby Memorial Fund, which ultimately led years down the road to this building being constructed. That means that every week we come in here and we experience the power of God on display, we're experiencing a life that got multiplied through efforts of making things about other people. And now that generosity has welled up into meaning because every time God moves in this room, there's a special smile on my wife's face to go, my dad's life was a part of this. My dad's life mattered. You don't get stories like that and impact like that if you live for you. And me-centered living is so common in Auburn. It's so common to include Jesus in a life that's really about you. But missional living is, I wanna wake up to the people around me. I wanna wake up to God's global story. You know, a couple weeks ago, I talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and I talked about how God wants the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, the nations that have never heard. You know what's crazy about that story? Is that the Ethiopian eunuch wasn't even in Ethiopia. He came to Israel and Philip found him. This week, so many students will come from the ends of the earth to Auburn, Alabama. And I mean, not just impressionable, but so open to what we have to say and what we have to give. We have people in this church who are spending such an effort on reaching those students. We have local initiatives that are, that are happening. And that's just one example, talking about the international students that are here. If I gave you the list of, here's what we're doing all over the world, here's what we're doing in Auburn. You can have a, a group of college students in your house. You can live your life on mission this way, this way, this way. It's not about hitting the right thing that you're supposed to do with this sermon. It's about, hey, honestly, before the throne of God, is this really about you? Or is it really about him? And the only way to find the answer to that is to look at your bank account and your calendar. And if those two things are not ready to turn toward people instead of self, you are not ready for the power of God to be poured out on your life. And neither am I. Is it about people? The miracle happens and they turn to the Lord. As God pours out his spirit, let's make sure that that is an act of worship that we're returning back to him, not an act of self-centered, pleasure-seeking spirituality that makes it about us. We're gonna take communion, remembering that Jesus did that for us and lived this out. So if you got your elements, you wanna grab those. If you didn't get one at any of our locations, raise your hand and raise it high because I want people to be able to find you. Including communion at the end of this sermon is not an accident. Jesus is the one who lived his life on mission for other people. Jesus is the one who modeled for us some of the very realities that I'm prescribing out loud for you. And I would love it if communion today is a church-wide act of repentance. God, we've believed too small and we've made certain things about us. I'm ready to come to the altar and watch you multiply this offering. Husbands, take this time to pray over your wives. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you just wanna sit this moment out. If you're not sure, you wanna sit this moment out. We got uh, communion stations available if you wanna come and kneel. Let's just have a moment of worship for God before the band comes up and leads us and let's let this sermon land on good soil to produce good fruit.